Sorry. Okay. Are you going to record on the? Um, yep. I have the, both. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay, so again, this is the share on the book of Yechezkel, Elur Nishmos, Mephraim, Shmuel, Ben Abraria, Kohen, Chalik, Chayat, Tova, Basagezer, Mendel, Kohen. We are, last week, we were in the process of studying the last verse in chapter two, which uh, was complicated enough uh, before we get to this week. Um, the the verse, uh, again, Yechezkel chapter two, verse 10. Uh, God, so to speak, has laid out a Megillah, uh, a parchment in front of Yechezkel. Um, and this is what he says. By He, God, so to speak, opened up this Megillah, this Sefer, in front of me. It was written on the back and the front. And was written upon it, kinim, which uh, the literal translation of lamentations, kinim, which are can be translated as song or what or murmuring or melodies, vehi and woe. So we had a long discussion last week. Uh, what exactly is going on in this chapter? And uh, we discussed the idea of the marshal from the Gemara in Erevin on that kafal on the Aleph, that kafal Aleph on the base on page 21 in the Gemara in Erevin, where the Gemara that brings four psukim uh, <clears throat> to describe the Torah in terms of length, breadth, width, and size, overall size. And... Uh, the idea that we discussed is if you've got a document that's written on two sides, so it contains a lot of information, and the Megillah is, uh, is depicting the Torah. And uh, on each side of this document, you've got uh, the breadth and the length, and that constitutes four aspects of, a, of this document. And the four aspects of this document relate to the four aspects of the Torah. Namely, the pshat, the simple understanding, or the literal, not really the literal translation, but the simple understanding of the text. Um, then there is drash, which is, as we understand it, the midrash, which teaches us philosophical lessons and uh, ethical lessons that we're supposed to draw from the Torah. That's on the front. That's what people can see. You know, a simple, or not a simple, but a, a comprehensive look at the Torah the Torah Shabbat the written Torah and the Torah Shabbat the oral law, gives us insights into the simple meaning or the contextual meaning of the verses and also the Midrashic understanding, those philosophical and ethical and sometimes halachic messages that are coming out of the text. On the back, uh, stuff you can't see, um, the two dimensions of length and breadth represent uh, deeper messages from the text which is the remez, things that are hinted to in the text, and sod, things that are hidden, things that are secret. I'm not going to go what I did last week because uh, it will take too long. And as I said, the shearim are readily available. Um, but um, what we have here is Yechezkel uh, being given this document, and he's going to be asked to, to eat it shortly. But, um, and it's unclear from the... From the commentaries, uh, there's a difference of opinion whether there is an actual Megillah here, whether there's an actual Sefer here, book here, 
uh, document here, or whether it's all allegorical. Uh, some of the opinion that there, there was an actual document that he will be asked to eat. Others say, no, it's an allegory to the Torah itself. And when he's asked to eat it, <clears throat> it's a request by God for him to imbibe, to ingest, to digest all the messages that are contained in the Torah, whether they be <clears throat> open, out in the open, or hidden behind. Achor, as the Apostle says again, the Apostle describes it, Kusuva ponim v'achor. It was written, ponim, open on the front, v'achor, but things were hidden behind. So, <clears throat> as I said, the Gemara in, in um, Erevin brings four psukim, four verses to describe exactly what's going on with the nature of the Torah, how it looks, how it appears, things that are easily discernible and things that are difficult or impossible to discern. And this is how the Marsha understands the Gemara, and he understands the, the Psukim, the four verses that the Gemara brings. So the Gemara actually gives, the first verse is from the book of Tehillim, which is Dovid HaMelech. And the Gemara uses the language of Rechova Mitzvos Choma'ol. David Amelach describes the Torah as your mitzvahs are very wide. Now, David obviously is only referring here to the width on the front of the Torah, which are the mitzvahs, the pshat, the simplest meaning of the text. You look at the text of the Torah, and there's various messages there that are easily to discern. The book of Barashas, for example, has got a lot of ethical and philosophical ideas, the ideas of ownership, the ideas of bitachon, the ideas of uh, trusting God, and uh, of course the Book of Shemos and Vayikram, Bamidbar, together with the Book of Devarim, are a mixture of stories, narratives designed to give philosophical lessons, ethical lessons, uh, halachic lessons, and of course contain all the 613 mitzvahs. That's what David is referring to, Rochvah, Mitzvah, Schor, Ma'ol. Your mitzvahs are very wide. Then the Gemara quotes a posset from Eo. The Gemara says, Talking about the Torah again, its measure is longer than the land and wider than the sea. Now here, Eo is talking in two dimensions. David HaMelech only mentions the width, which is the easiest thing to understand about the Torah, the simple understanding of the text. Eo talks in two dimensions, and he refers to both the width and the length of the Torah. He sees both the length and width on the front of the skull, on the scroll. In other words, not only the pshat, not only the simple meaning, um, but also the drash, the medrash, and uh, things that are discernible from a club, much closer examination of the text, and uh, messages that are not necessarily halachic, messages that could be philosophical, messages that could be ethical. Then... The Gemara quotes this posset, our posset, uh, from Yechezkel, which says, The scroll was written in front and on the back, on both sides. So what Yechezkel is adding here, I'm, I'm explaining the Gemara according to the Marshal here, but he's not the only one that explains it like this. He says, Yechez, what Yechezkel is adding to the words of David Amelech and adding to the words of Eov is the following. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by a, a, a peremptory uh, examination of the text of the Torah. 
don't be uh, fooled by a um, superficial analysis of the Torah. There are things written on the other side that you can't see. And that is the remez and the so, things that are hinted to, that are not at all obvious from the text. And so, things that are completely hidden. And I gave you the example last week uh, in the idea of creation itself. We have the idea of a particular secret in the, in the sense that in our world, everything has, uh, every effect has a cause. Uh, we know that if you throw a brick through a glass window, so the glass shatters. And uh, the glass shattering is the effect. And the fact of throwing a brick through, through the width at the window is the cause of the glass shattering. Everything in our world has a cause and effect. Um, one of the things that doesn't have a cause and effect is the creation. We see the effect, but the cause is hidden from us. The actual, if the actual methodology, the cause of the creation, however closely you examine the text of the first chapter of the Torah, you'll never get down to the bare, you'll never get, you, even to the extent if you conquer all the laws of nature and all the laws of the universe and all the physical attributes of the universe, you'll never get to the cause. The cause is the first cause. The cause is God. And since God is beyond understanding, therefore the cause of the universe will remain hidden, remain a soul. So that's an example of what you, this, this, this particular posik in Yechezkel is saying. And finally, the Gemara quotes a posik from Zechariah, which gives actual dimensions. And the actual dimensions um, are to inform you that the, the aggregate surface area of the Torah, not the volume, but the surface area of the Torah compared to the surface area of all physical knowledge, physical knowledge of the universe, you can't compare. Like um, the physical universe is tiny and the knowledge of the physical universe is tiny in comparison to the information and secrets that are contained in the Torah. Human beings, even if they completely conquer and answer all the questions about their own puny physical universe, will still be only, as the Gemara describes it, one in one three thousand two hundredth of the way to understanding just the surface area of the knowledge contained in the Torah, never mind what's buried deep inside of it. And what, for example, are the types of secrets of the universe that are buried deep inside the Torah? things that we can never hope to understand, never hope to comprehend, mainly because they are not physical phenomena. The, we live in a world where we have to ascribe a physical phenomena, phenomena in order to understand it. Um, the human intellectual capacity to understand the way you, the universe is set up is limited to understanding and rationalizing physical rather than spiritual phenomena. So the verse continues and ends with the or ends our verse ends with the examples of ideas buried very deep. Ksuva ponim va'achor. Yechezkel is being shown something that uh, has got re representation in the physical world. It can be understood in the physical world in part, but it's also got va'achor, something that's beyond, something that is impossible for the human mind uh, to know. The human mind can ponder it. And that is one of the duties, as is pointed out by the Ramchal, 
that there's a, a duty upon all humanity to ponder these deep secrets of creation, but uh, understanding these phenomena is impossible. And uh, <clears throat> this is what Yechezkel is told right at the end of the verse. He's told right at the end of the verse, because of Eleha, you know what's written there on the back? You know what's written on the back in the area of secrets? Kinim vehegevehi. What is kinim hegevehi? So the Gemara again, the Gemara in Erevin, which is quoted by Rashi here in the Sefer of Yechezkel, I'll give you the expanded explanation from the Gemara. The Gemara explains kinim. What are kinim? Kinim are, uh, the word kinim refers to the punishment, suffering of the righteous in this world. What we call tzaddik viralo, rosha v'tovla. Why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people. Why bad people prosper and why sometimes tzaddikim have terrible experiences, uh, as we discovered, you know, not so long ago. 70 years ago is the latest example of that. But uh, it's been a constant in Jewish history of Sadiq Varalo, Rosh Vatolo. Very often we see evil people flourishing and we see righteous people going through terrible suffering. Why is that? The answer is it's a secret. It's Ochor. And it's something that's written on the back. It's something that's written in terms of non-physical of a non-physical phenomena and therefore understanding of something like that is impossible also written on the back there is vehege uh, the language of the pulsic is kidim vehege vehi so the second thing the, that's written that's uh, a, an example of things that we can't possibly hope to absorb or rationalize in, in an intellectual capacity as human beings is Hege. Hege, the Gemara says, is the melody. This is the melody, the song of the righteous in the world to come, and the song that they sing as they enter the world to come. Exactly what that means. Again, it's too far away from our uh, ability to rationalize, our ability, our, of, our intellect to take in. That's Hege, the song, the melody of the righteous in the world to come. And vehi, the woe, literally woe, that's the punishment and the pain of the wicked in the world to come, which is also difficult for us to understand. What does it mean? The physical body dies. What does it mean, punishment and pain in the world to come? There's no, we understand punishment, we understand suffering in terms of physical disability or in terms of illness or in terms of mental illness. Um, but once you're dead, What's the idea of pain? What's the idea of punishment? It's something we can only contemplate, but never actually really get to the bottom of it. And so that's what's written on the back. Those are examples of things that are written on the back that Yechezkel is, is shown, but uh, he can't really rationalize it. These are things that he can't really rationalize. He can only take them in as general principles. Reb Chaim David Azulai, the Chidah, who comments on Rashi here and on the Gemara, adds a few bones to the complexity of these three ideas. Um, and also he reinforces the notion that these things are completely hidden from human comprehension. He writes as follows, he says, Kinyin vehegevehi, what's written on the back, what's written beyond, that's written in 
written into the Torah, so to speak. It's actually on the surface area of the Torah, but at the dark side of the moon. So, you know, we have the moon and there's the area that we see. And if you remember the, the Apollo missions before they landed on the moon, so they went round the back of the moon. There was a 30-minute period where they were, all communications were lost because they were on the dark side of the moon. Well, these things, kinim vehegevehi, are on the dark side of the Torah. They're on a, in a place where human beings can't communicate with them or rationalize them. And so the Chidah says as follows, kinim vehegevehi, pirish rashi. He quotes rashi and he quotes the Gemara. Kinim, what's kinim? Puranosom shel tzadikim ba'olamazah. That is the punishment, the pain, the suffering that tzadikim suffer in this world. Hege, what's the hege? Zumatan schorin shel tzadikim. That's the sound of the righteous receiving their rewards in the world to come. La'asad lavo, in the world to come. Vehi, what's vehi? Puranosom shel tzadikim la'asad lavo. And that is, as we said, that is the punishment of the wicked, the pain of the wicked in the world to come. But Efshid, so now he now he's quoted Rashi, he's quoted the Gemara. He gives a, he adds a little bit uh, to to our understanding, a little bit, a real little bit. But Efshid the Rem is sold. So this is all hinting at uh, incredible secrets. How um, Gilgal, and it's all to do with Gilgal. And this, this language of ponim on the front and on the back uh, has also got, in Kabbalistic terms, an alternate meaning. And from here, from this Kabbalistic, from an, a Kabbalistic perspective, and from the perspective of Gilgal, the fact that certain souls come back here, even after they've died, they come back into another physical body, for various reasons, which we'll, we will, we're not going to go into here, but we will go into later on in the Sefer of Yechezkel. When we say Nimshach Kinim, what's Kinim? Puranosom shel tzadikim le'olam azayim machmas gilgul she'ovar. It's not just talking about the suffering of the tzadikim, but the suffering of the tzadikim in all their visits here. You can have a soul, or parts of a soul, as the Ranchal describes, strands of a soul, that have made many visits here. And uh, these particular pieces of soul are subject to suffering every time they come here. And uh, why that happens, how that happens, the rationale behind that happening, uh, again, completely and utterly uh, divorced from our reality or from our uh, ability to reconcile with our understanding of God. The Heger, what is Heger? That's the, the Hege, the melody. That's the, the, re, the reward that the Tzadikim eventually receives. When they finally finish their final trip, when their souls finally finish their final trip into this world and they never have to return. And they can finally receive their reward in the next world. Um, it's a reward in itself, says the Chidah. Never having to return this reward, never having to return to this world and suffer um, again because they've now completed their task and the suffering that they have endured has completed a tikkun. Exactly what the tikkun is, again, he, will, he doesn't say and uh, the implication is he doesn't know either. The Chidah, even the great Chidah, Rabchaim David Azulai.
And finally, the he. What's the he? Nehi shel rashon shelo niskanu visablu onshim olam abo. The permanent punishment, the nehi. What's the nehi? The woe, the permanent punishment of the wicked in the world to come. After they failed to make the tikkunim, they had various visits here. They had a chance to do a tikkun. They had a chance to repair from previous visits here and complete their tasks. Uh, after multiple visits to this world, they patently failed to do so. So that's uh, the Chidor adding to this idea of what Yechezkel is being shown here. Yechezkel is being given access to the surface area of the Torah. As I said, two parts of it are readily available to someone who's prepared to sit down and study the Torah. The other two parts, the Remez and the Sod, remain um, hidden, uh, illusory to us, and um, elusive, extremely elusive. Uh, there are people in every generation who have some insight into this idea of um, Remez and uh, the Vilna Gorna, as I said last week, was one of those people, but very few do. Um, so why is Yechezkel being given all this information? Why is Yechezkel being shown the whole Torah? Why is he being given an insight into these th- three particular ideas of suffering? The suffering endured by the tzaddikim, the eventual reward that they get after they've visited here many times, and the, the punishment, the pain that's going to be suffered by the wicked in the world to come. And the answer is, Yechezkel is being given this information because Yechezkel is about to embark on a prophecy. The prophecy he's about to embark on is a negative prophecy, a very negative prophecy about the destruction of the base of Megdosh. Remember, Yechezkel at this point in time is living in Babylonia. He was on the first wave of exile from the land of Israel to Babylonia. He's been in Babylonia for five years. And it's going to be another six years before the base of Megdush is going to be destroyed. And at this point, God is going to inform the Jewish people of what's coming next. And Yechezkel is going to be the mouthpiece. So Yechezkel is about to embark on a prophecy, a very negative prophecy about the destruction of the base of Megdush and all the tragedy that will accompany that event. And before he does that, God is giving Yechezkel an insight into Kinim Vehegevahi. God is showing Yechezkel a tiny glimpse of the myriad of different uh, sodos, secrets, ramosim, and hints uh, of the creation um, that is particularly relevant to his time and circumstances. Because he is going to be prophesying about a time of terrible suffering. That when it comes and that when it comes to issues of destruction, suffering, and exile, when righteous people are going to suffer. And wicked people, most notably the Babylonians, and later on the Romans, and later on the Spanish, and later on the British, and later on the French, and later on the Germans, and later on everybody else, the Poles. Um, He needs to have some type of insight to be able to pass on the message, the ideas of destruction, suffering, and exile, um, when he's going to see... Uh, tremendous suffering among r- very righteous people, and he's going to see uh, wicked people, really wicked people, prosper. And it's not possible to rationalize these occurrences using linear physical laws. 
the physical laws of the universe, the natural laws of the universe, or the natural laws of society even, um, that govern our intellectual capacity for understanding. And uh, the reality is, if you try and apply human intellectual abilities to unravel these mysteries, as particularly these mysteries, the mysteries of destruction, suffering, and exile, you're doomed to failure. It's impossible to look at the Holocaust. It's not impossible to look at the murder of two million Jews by the Romans. It's impossible to look at the Chelmanitsky massacres. It's impossible to look at the Crusades. It's impossible to look at the constant persecution of the Jews through the millennia through the lens of rational human thought and logic. Because if you use your human intuition and your intellect to explain these events, you're doomed to dismay. And even worse, you're doomed to trying to create an argument to explain these events that have no bearing on MS. Plenty of people have tried, particularly secular people, um, but even religious Jews have tried to explain these terrible events. And uh, we keep coming back to the Holocaust because it's very fresh in our minds. And certainly in the last 70 years, it's subsumed almost every other event in human in Jewish history. But the reality is it, it, the Holocaust, uh, I know people don't like to hear this, but it was not a unique event. Um, the Romans killed uh, as, in a percentage terms as many Jews as the, as the Germans did. The truth is it was over a longer period of time, but in God's estimation, uh, God who is timeless, it makes no difference whether you kill him, you know, a third of the Jewish population over a 12-year period over, or over a 120-year period. From God's perspective, 12 years and 120 years are exactly the same. Um, so trying to um, understand, trying to rationalize, trying to even get to grips, in, even in a simple way, with the suffering, the exile, the persecution that the Jews are going to be suffering, you have to remember this is the first moment in Jewish history when this is going to happen. This is the, this is the, the moment, so to speak, that's going to be the, set the precedent for the next two and a half thousand years of Jewish history. Never before in Jewish history um, has the Jew, have the Jewish people gone into exile, gone into destruction since they left Egypt. They've been happily ensconced, not happily ensconced, but they've been ensconced in the land of Israel um, with autonomous rule. Um, and this is the first moment, this is their first glimpse of this idea of exile, destruction, persecution, and eviction from their land. Um, so Yechezkel is being made aware that this, unfortunately, is part of the future of the Jewish people. And trying to rationalize it is a fool's errand, because the MS is kasuba ponim v'ocho, as God has told him. It's written on the front and on the back. Sure, there's plenty, plenty of parts of the Torah, which is the blueprint, as we know, the blueprint of creation. There's plenty of, of pieces in the Torah that are available to be understood rationally and competently by any uh, intelligent human being. But there's also this ochor, things that are buried deep in an area of the Torah, unreachable uh, from this physical space-time, uh, and again, I stress this is space-time. Um, uh, in relation to God, I'm not going to go back to discuss what I discussed last week, but space-time continuing, and uh, 
the Ramban's reference to these issues and to the Maral and the Ramban, the Ramban and the Rambam. But in our physical space-time continuum, these things are buried so deep inside the Torah that they become unreachable. So the issues of destruction, suffering and exile and all the other almost infinite hidden elements of the Torah need to be examined with a depth that is beyond the bounds of physical plane in which we inhabit. And what is about to unfold, as I just described, is the first destruction, the first time the Jewish people are going to suffer like this, the first exile of the Jewish people in history since they became a nation on Mount Sinai. The Jewish people have never suffered like they are about to suffer this at this moment. The 10 tribes are just about or are going into exile or are, are, are being sent off into exile. The next stage is the base of Midrash is going to be destroyed and the rest of the Jews in the southern kingdom are also going into exile. We are told it is because of, of specific sins and that's what the Gemara wants us to rationalize. It's all to do with sin and that's something we can deal with. The the Torah, the Gemara describes the reasons for the destruction of the first base of Mikdash because of the three um, cardinal sins that they were committing. And there's no question about it, that both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were heavily involved in Shvichas Domin, murder. There were gangs. Uh, People don't think of Jewish people having murderous gangs um, roaming the uh, countryside killing and robbing people, but you should know uh, it's true. Uh, so much so, the Gomorrah and Sota, it's a Mishnah and Sota, that uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, uh, was Mavatel, the Egla Rufa. Egla Rufa is the law that if a dead body is found within the confines or near a city, the elders of that city have to make a declaration, the man, this man's blood is not on our hands. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had to cancel it. Because of the uh, the profligate, uh, the amount, <laughs> try not to say that word, because of the, the uh, huge amount of murders that were being committed in the land of Israel. So there was Shvichas Domin, there was Giliaroyas, there was uh, wife swapping and orgies and everything else you can imagine. And of course, there was a Vodazora, there was pagan worship, all these three sins contributed to the destruction of the base of Migdosh, the first one. The second one, we're told that they, it was because sinas chinam, senseless hatred among the Jewish people. These are the types of things that we can rationalize. Uh, what we can't rationalize is why so many innocents, so many sadiqim suffered in the process. Just like we can't rationalize why 1.2 million children were murdered in the Holocaust. It's not even worth going there to try and rationalize it, because it's impossible uh, with the tools we're given, the rational mind that we're given, to even contemplate how that thing could be appropriate or how that thing could actually happen. And, of course, why so many evil people prosper in the process. It's all an anathema. Uh, as long as you don't take into account this language of kinim vehegevehi, Kinim Hegavahi is an indication that there are things you don't you can't work out. There are things that God's calculations, um, the bottom line is these are certain things you're never going to be able to come to terms with. Of course, we know from hindsight 
that uh, what Yechezkel will be revealing to the Jewish people in, in his uh, prophecy, this will just going to be one of the first of many, many moments like this that will overtake the Jewish nation over the next two and a half thousand years. So God shows and tells Yechezkel, you, Yechezkel, even you, the great prophet, who we discussed is comparable in, in certain respects to Moshe Rabbeinu in terms of his humility. He was privileged to see in chapter one, as we discussed in great detail, the, the vision of the Merkava, the, the vision of God leaving Yerushalayim. Uh, even you, Yecheskel, will never be able to understand what is about to happen without taking into account issues that are beyond the physical world and beyond your ability to rationalize them. What is about to happen transcends the human intellect and can only be understood in the context of another hidden world, which is a world you can't imagine, you can't relate to. It's the world of the world to come, which, as the Rambam points out, don't waste your time trying to work out what it is. The, the, the Tanakh is full of imagery of the coming of the Mashiach. The Tanakh is not full of imagery of the world to come. In fact, it's silent on the imagery of the world to come. And uh, something we discussed, those that learned the Gemara in Sanhedrin with me in great detail towards the end of Sanhedrin, the Gemara makes it very clear that uh, to ponder the uh, coming of the Mashiach and the redemption of the Jewish people, so that's, uh, that's one thing. But to contemplate the world to come or to contemplate the resurrection of the dead, it's a fool's errand. These are... Kidin vehegevehi. These are written ochor. These are written on the back of the sefer. The human being, you'll never be able to get to grips with it. And the Rambam might writes quite clearly: anyone that ponders these um, these issues is wasting their time. It's bittles of that. So that the suffering of the Jewish people and the prosperity of the wicked in the physical plane is inexplicable without reference to the world that is impossible to perceive by physical beings. We can describe it. Kinim vehegevehi. That's how, that's how you can describe it. And that's how Yechezkel describes it. One thing describing something, it's something quite another to understand it. And as we discussed when we discussed light, the nature of light in an early shear, uh, light is something we can describe. The properties of light we can, uh, we can describe. But its nature, the nature of the photon, we can never, well, we, we have never been able to understand it, even up to this moment, which is what the 23rd of August 2021 was still at a loss to understand the actual nature of light. And... Uh, I can assure you, even if we get to understand the nature of light, we'll never be able to understand the nature of kinim vehegevehi, what's written on the back, what's hidden on the other side of the Torah. So that is really the end of this chapter, uh, the end of chapter two, uh, which leads us into chapter three, which is really a continuation here. Uh, the question uh, can you compare for us the suffering you're speaking of here in Yechezkel to the suffering of the slavery in Egypt? And I don't think so. The suffering of the slavery in Egypt 
were the Jewish people were not a nation yet. We're talking about the Jewish people as a nation, suffering as a nation. Uh, they weren't really, um, in terms of receiving the Torah, they weren't really the Israelites. They weren't really the Jewish people in the sense that they'd accepted the Torah. Um, the suffering in Egypt was of a different quality um, and certainly of a different quantity. Um, but yes, the slavery in Egypt, uh, I said in Shia this morning, we described uh, Egypt as, we described it to me, Beis Avodim, the house of slavery. So the Abarbanel points out, Beis Avodim, they're the house of the slaves. The Egyptians are really supposed to be the slaves themselves. They're descendants of Chom. Chom is the son of Noah who was cursed. Oh, his son was cursed, Canaan. And Canaan's son was Mitzrayim. So when we say Beis Avodim, it's not necessarily referring to our point of slavery, but referring to the fact that we're in a house, we were servants to the slaves themselves. That's how low down we were. But in terms of um, physical torture and everything else, that didn't last very long in Egypt. Whereas the events that uh, Yecheskel is going to have explained to him are going to have repercussions right through till today. I mean, we're living in Golas still. And um, so even when the Jews return to the land of Israel uh, later on, 70 years after the destruction of the base of Migdosh, they only did so at the behest of or under the direct control of other nations. We, we never had, from the year 423 BCE, we never had autonomy over the land of Israel um, until the year 1948 in the Common Era. So uh, it's been essentially skipping from one exile to, to another, and um, which is dark, right? It's a dark history of the Jewish people. So now uh, we're going to start chapter three, and it's really a continuation of chapter two, because in the previous chapter that we just finished discussing, uh, in verses eight to ten, God tells Yechezkel that he's going to give him something and instruct him to eat it. And he says, just to review those verses, uh, 8 to 10, uh, again, this is chapter one, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, Va'ato ben Adam, son of man, listen to what I'm telling you, don't be rebellious. And we discuss what this means, like the house of rebellion, the Jewish people, but say, open your mouth and eat it, exactly what I'm going to give to you. And I saw a hand was stretched out towards me. And in it was a scroll of a book. And again, the apostle we just discussed, it was opened up in front of me. It was written on the front and the back. So now, in chapter three, um, we're going to be discussing exactly what happens with the Sefer. And uh, in, in verse eight, in chapter two, verse eight, uh, God told Yerezko, open, you're going to, whatever I'm going to give you, open your mouth and eat it. So Rashi says there that this language is uh, purely allegorical, metaphorical. It doesn't literally mean that God is going to give Yerezko something to eat. Rather, it means to bend your ear and listen and digest the message. 
so that it will please you and be embedded in your soul as if you were hungrily eating food. And then you'll have a responsibility to pass on the message to the Jews. That was verse 8. In verse 9 and 10, we are told that the, what was handed over to Yechezkel was Megillah Sefer, was a, a Sefer. So here in chapter 2, God is going to instruct Yechezkel to eat the Sefer. Now, according to the way the Rashi, the Rambam, and the Barbanel understand this, this is, again, merely an allegory about digesting fully the information contained in this uh, document, in this Megillah, in this Sefer, which is the whole Torah, contains the surface area of the Torah. Again, it does not contain the volume of the Torah, just the surface area of the Torah, so that it becomes a part of it. Eat it. Eat the information, not literally eat the, the paper it's written on. There is no paper. But there's the, as Rashi, the Rambam, the Barbanel all say, eat, digest all the information that you've got in front of you so that you know the content, so that you understand the Torah completely and you can transmit some of the message that's on it to the Greek Jews. Now, regarding this Megillah Sefer itself, this scroll, there is a, a huge difference of opinion whether it's really an allegory, as we discussed. Um, some commentators hold that uh, none of this is an allegory and that this God is instructing, uh, will, will be instructing Yechezkel to physically swallow a real Megillah and digest it, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But, and of course, uh, the opinions I just mentioned uh, is that the whole thing is an allegory, that uh, this is all prophetic. He's seeing this in a prophetic dream or in a prophetic trance. And he's being asked to digest the information as it's given to him. But the reality is, it, it doesn't really, as we'll see as we go through the chapter, it doesn't seem to matter whether the scroll and its eating and the eating of it is real or allegorical. We, whatever it is, we still need to understand the nature of the message to Yechezkel from God, particularly why the language of Achila is mentioned so many times. We're going to see the word Achila, eating, is mentioned five times in the first three verses. Um, instinctively, instinctively, you would view the language of eating a scroll as something allegorical. But the idea of a physical action, um, like eating a scroll, accompanying a prophecy, has got particular resonance, resonance in relation to the power of a prophecy. So I just want to spend a moment uh, distinguishing between a prophecy, an action that's described, or a physical item that's described in a prophecy, what difference it makes, whether it's allegorical or it's real, whether it's physically real. Someone's got a question here. Gematria Mary Kinim. Error, sorry. Okay. Okay. So just a, a little footnote about prophets performing physical acts. So those that learn the Derech Hashem with me, and uh, this is not just in the Derech Hashem, this is in his Kabbalistic works as well, including Das Tvunos. The Ramchal predicts the importance of a prophet performing physical acts accompanying his prophecy, because sometimes a thing is not fully real until it is expressed in the physical world. So I'll give you an analogy to explain what, what, exactly what this means. Um, this is something that I do from time to time, especially when I'm getting older and I keep forgetting stuff. Um, sometimes you want to remember to do something, but you know, you know, you, you're going to forget. So you either set a, a reminder on your phone, which is something you can do nowadays, but uh, 
30 years ago, you couldn't put a reminder on your phone because there were no mobile phones. So what some people do, or some people did, you put a stone in your pocket to remind you to do X. And what's amazing is when you put your hand in your pocket and you touch the stone, you're reminded. And the strange thing is you can use the same trick with the same stone multiple times for multiple reminders, and it always works. That's a symptom that as long as the reminder is still only a mental reminder, it's not fully real yet. It's only when it interacts, when the reminder interacts with the physical world, that it actually takes place. And um, this idea is brought out by the Maharal in his commentary, the Ber Hagola, in section two. He writes as follows. Know and understand, for it is an amazing insight to create for a heavenly decree an emulation or a sign below the physical action, so that the good will come to pass and the decree will be fulfilled for the good. Therefore, it is fitting to create a sign or a simulation, a physical action, as we find that the prophets did. This is why we eat at the start of the year items which have a good sign, so, which is just coming up in a couple of weeks, the first night of Rosh Hashanah, we're going to eat Simonim. Why do we eat Simonim? He says it's a good sign. So the decree will emerge into reality. A good decree will emerge into reality. And the good decree will thereby be fulfilled. This is not nichush. This is not sorcery or any type of black magic. It's only preparation for the fulfillment of the decree of good. This is what they meant when the Gemara says, it's a Gemara in Horoyos, Simona Milsaheve. Since we, we say that signs are substantive, for it is substantive in this regard that via the sign, physical sign, the decree will emerge into positive reality. And uh, interestingly, the Baal Shem Tov, I don't normally quote Hasidim, but uh, got pretty good at it in the last uh, few weeks in teaching Yechezkel. Um, the Baal Shem Tov quotes a positive from Shira Shirim. He writes, Hishpati eschem benoti Yerushalayim. I beg you, O daughters of uh, Yerushalayim, b'tzvos or ba'ayolos asadeh, by the gazelles or the uh, deer of the field, in to'iru v'im to'oruru eshoavo asher techpots. That... Uh, you neither awaken nor arouse the love while it is desirable. But what does possible? What does this possible mean? So the Baal Shem, this is a Shir Hashim, so it's uh, got multiple layers. But the Baal Shem Tov explains like this: that if you awaken your love for God, add put it into an object, an action, a chayfetz. Techpots doesn't mean desire here; it means a chayfetz, an object. If your love for God is only an inner experience, the feeling will eventually dissipate. But if you express that love for God by doing an action in the physical world, that action can never be undone. And similarly, he writes, when you get up in the morning, you make birkas Torah before learning. He said, but many people hold that if you're only going to think about Torah or go over a piece of Gomorrah in your mind, you don't have to make a bracha. But if you do a physical action, speak, teach, write Torah, then you have to make a bracha because then it becomes, then your learning becomes real. Um, so 
there's a there's a, a specific characteristic and a specific um, importance, crucial importance, when a prophet actually does a physical action to accompany his prophecy. It means that the prophecy, so to speak, has been taken from the spiritual world and has has a physical representation in this world. And uh, as a result of that, it's uh, under almost no circumstances can ever be overturned. There are circumstances where it can, but almost never. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow both paths here. That in fact, Yechetzkel is commanded to physically eat the scroll and or in actuality, the whole thing is an allegory. That there's no real Torah scroll here and there's no actual eating. But neither understanding will make a difference to our understanding of the message of the eating of the scroll and the prophecy that it relates to. So that is the introduction, really, to chapter three. And um, the first few psukim are very easy to understand, uh, or so you think. Um, so we'll, we've got in our time that we've got left. Can I just ask Larry, is this the last uh, share of the series, of the season? If we're going to take a break now till October 4th. We're going to take a break now till October 4th. Okay, so okay, so I want to finish off at a, uh, a point of, you know, what they do in the, in the TV series. I want to leave off at a point where, you know, it's begging people to, um, begging people to return. So I have to find a, a suitable point that, uh, yeah. Season finale. We need a season finale here. Yeah, I need a season finale. I'll have to, I'll have to sort that out in a second. Okay. So let's just start the first uh, couple of verses of the chapter, see if we can get some type of uh, understanding of what's going here. Vayomar Elad, it's almost a continuation, of, well, it is a continuation of chapter two. Vayomar Elad, he spoke to me. Now, according to Babylon, it's an angel. According to most other opinions, it's actual God speaking to him. Vayomar Elad, God spoke to me. Ben Adam, son of man, Eisasher, Timotse, Echo. That which you find, like in front of you, echol, eat it. Echol eat this scroll, the leich, and go. Daber Israel, and speak. In other words, speak, deliver its contents verbally to the people of it, to the children of Israel. Um, so, language here is a bit strange because there's some comes seems to be a double expression what you find eat and eat the scroll the assumption has to be that that which Jehezkel found must have been the scroll because that's what we are told in chapter 2 and then God now says whatever you find eat which is obviously referring to the scroll so why does God, or the angel who's speaking to Yechezkel, say, eat the scroll? After all, the only thing that Yechezkel has found, or any, the only thing that's in front of him, is the scroll. So, you know, why does why we have this double expression? Whatever you can find there, eat. And eat the Megillah. Like, what else is he going to be? There's nothing else there. God not, not giving him anything else. So that's one... Uh, something that's a little bit odd about the first verse. And now the plot thickens in verse two. Let's see if Yechezkel does as he's told. So he's been told twice to eat it. 
um, and I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Does Yechezkel do what he's told to do? Does Yechezkel do what he was told to do? What was he told to do? Anyone? Find it. He was told to find it and do what? Eat. Eat it, take an action. And what did he do? He opened his mouth. He opened his mouth and what happened? Fed it. He did it passively. Yeah, somebody fed it to him. He didn't eat it. Like almost if we'll see in a second. So seems very clear from the verse Yechesel didn't eat it himself as he was instructed, but rather it was fed to him by God. So the Malvin offers an opinion why. Remember, Malvin's one of the one of the opinions that says this is all allegorical. He couldn't reach the level. We're talking about the scroll is an allegorical scroll of the whole Torah. So uh, Yechesel wasn't capable of absorbing it, digesting all that information. He needed some help. He needed the help from God. So Malvin's explanation fits in very well if you're talking in allegory here. Uh, but there's no real Megillah, there's no real eating, just the idea of absorbing information in a prophecy, which very often will require the assistance of God. But if this is a real Megillah, and Yechezkel was told to eat it, why didn't he do so? Why did he wait for God to feed him? And now the plot thickens even deeper. Verse 3. This is where we'll finish because this is going to leave us off at a, at a big problem. Then God spoke, spoke to him again. Ben Adam, bit Feed your stomach and fill your bowels. With this scroll, which I am giving you. And I ate it. So I did eat it. And in my mouth, it was as sweet as honey. So here you've got verse number one. Verse one, God tells him, you know, whatever you find in front of you, eat. And eat the Megillah. Well, there's nothing else in front of him but the Megillah. So why does it turn to eat what's in front of him and eat the Megillah? Why didn't God just say, you know, there's a Megillah I'd sent you. Go and eat it. Then he's, so, but he's commanded to eat it. Verse two comes out and it says, I opened my mouth and it was fed to me. Like he didn't eat it. He was told to eat it. He didn't eat it. And then in verse three, God said to him, you know, fill yourself up, fill your stomach with the scroll, which I'm giving to you, the Ochla. And I did, I ate it. Like, didn't the verse just say it was fed to him in verse two? Now he's saying he's eat it. He ate it. But he, and oh, wow, it was sweet as honey. By the way, should it have been sweet as honey? After the, begin, after the first half of the shear I gave you today, should it, him absorbing all this information, all this kinim vehegevehi, should it have been sweet like honey? What, what did it contain? What's the prophecy going to be about? Rebuke. Re, more than rebuke. Pain, pain. pain suffering, future. exile, death. So, so let's just get this straight. Yechezkel is commanded, Yechezkel, let me just pause it. 
uh, not pause, let me just mute everybody. I just want to present you with the problem that we're going to deal with in the next year. Yechezkel is told to whatever's in front of him eat and eat the scroll. So obviously it's a, it's a little bit strange because the only thing in front of him was the scrolls, but he's commanded to eat the scroll. And he, he opened his mouth, but he didn't eat the scroll. It was fed to him. And then in verse three, God said, you know, fill yourself up and eat it. So he ate it. And it tasted like sweet as honey. Now, it shouldn't have tasted as sweet as honey because I just t- got finished telling you after a half an hour, the first half an hour of the shear, that what was contained in this prophecy, the essence of this prophecy that he's going to deliver to the Jewish people is a prophecy of exile, a prophecy of death, a prophecy of Sadiq Varala, of righteous people being murdered, of persecution, of defilement, of destruction of the base of Mikdosh. And now he's eaten it, he's absorbed it, he's digested it, and he said, ooh, that's nice. But to heed the feet in my mouth, kidvash lamoto, it tasted like honey. So these three verses, with five references to the word eating, one reflexive and four active, these, these verses need some um, explanation. Um, oh boy, are you going to get an explanation? Um, you, you won't believe what's coming next, how to rationalize these three verses, which is my way of saying you better tune in next time um, uh, to the next year. But really, you, you're not going to believe what these verses are trying to tell you. Does this remind you of anything, by the way? these three verses i'm asking this of the women particularly of the women uh just a question do these three verses remind you of something you might have done earlier in you know when you had your children childbirth not childbirth let me go let me go through the let me go through the psukum again and and describe a, a potential um uh, understanding. Let me just, just let me just, let me just mute everybody. Let's see if this makes any sense. Imagine a young child on his high chair. Then the parent is trying to feed him something. Look in front of you. Eat it. And the kid's playing around with the food. Don't want to put it in his mouth. Look, it's it's what it's your favorite. Eat it. Look, it's uh, you know mashed carrot. Eat it. And then verse two, the kid, you finally get the kid, but you finally get the kid to open his mouth, but he won't eat, right? The kid doesn't eat. He'll open his mouth, but as soon as you try and put food in it, he closes his mouth again. So so eventually he's got to be fed it. And then um, you say to the kid, but well, the kid tastes it and he likes it. So you say to the kid, yeah, take as much as you like. Fill up, have as much as you like. And uh, then he eats it. Once you force him to taste it and he likes the taste of it, so he can't get enough of it. So he eats it himself. He doesn't need your help anymore. Because that, when, he, when he finally is forced to taste it, he realizes he likes the taste. So then you don't need to feed him anymore. And um, he's quite happy to feed it to himself. That's what it sounds. Does that make any sense to anybody? That's certainly what it sounds like. Okay. 
So that's just an insight. We'll see. We'll see in Mitzvah If anybody's got any questions, now's the time. Um, and then we're going to go on our, our mid-season break. It's, uh, it's the summer break, the holiday break. Um, and we'll pick up in Chapter 3, at the beginning of Chapter 3 next time. But if anybody's got any questions, as I said, now is the time to ask. I can't promise I'll answer, but I'll certainly listen. Yeah. Why, why are eating and being fed mutually exclusive? Why he was fed and he ate it? Why? why yeah, but he was commanded. He was commanded in verse one to eat it himself. Well, but it's not real anyway. How could? Okay. He According to some opinions, it is real. But even if it's not real, you're commanded to digest it, to read it, to imbibe it, even mentally, intellectually. And he, he had to be fed. It had to be forced into his imagination. We'll see. It's, it's, it's not as straightforward as you think. It's really not as straightforward as you think. What's going on here? Yeah. I think you're at the end of the story already. Sorry? You read the end of the story. Not fair. I've read the end. The yeah, end I've of read the. Story. I've read the end of the story, so I know what's coming next, and I know it, how uh, un, unusual uh, what's going on here is. But I'm not going to let you in on the secret because I want you to come back on October the whatever it is. What what date's it, Larry? October four. October the fourth, which is a very very uh, what's it called? A very uh, precipitous, uh, uh, auspicious day. I don't know why. It's the but, first uh, Monday after Sukkot. Oh, it's the first Monday after Sukkot. Yeah. The 300th day of the Omer. Right. Um, any, any, any questions? Harvey Farber, you've got no questions. Yorkshireman. How can a Yorkshireman not have any questions? It's not, not possible. You're always nosy people. Anybody else is David? I did have, have a question to you on the chat. This is the Yushi of Daber and Omer. The two. Um, the two yeah, top- yeah, we're not, we're not even got that. We're not even got to that yet. Um, one can digest food and also digest information. Yes, correct. So, okay. Um, oh, David Taylor is there. There you are, another Yorkshireman. The man after my own heart. Stay in Yorkshire, man. We don't need you anywhere. Out of Yorkshire. Stay where you are. Um, okay. If there's no other questions, I wish everybody a Shana Tava Um Thank you and, very much. Uh, uh, Gamal Tova. And uh, we should all have a benched year and get, get uh, all the brothers on Rosh Hashanah. And uh, we'll meet back in Mitz Hashem, uh, God willing, on the 4th of October, um, which I think is, is what? It's like six weeks away, right? Something like that. And uh, in the meantime, everyone should have a, a great uh, end to the summer, a great uh, end of Elul. Great, Sarah, she made sure, Rosh Hashanah, so she made sure, Yom Kippur, and a Gemara Chasim Atova to everybody. Kol Tov. Thank you, Thank you, Kol Tov, Kol Tov. Bye. Thank you.